I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, we are live. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream where we talk about uh, issues of theology and apologetics, and we try to connect these things to the Christian life. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the state of youth in our world today. And I have a special guest with me, uh, Dr. Sean McDowell, who I'll, I'll let him introduce himself in just a moment. I'm grateful that he took the time to be with us today. But just to give you guys a recap, you know, we always start by saying, what's this thing going to be about? We're going to talk about like who the youth are, um, how are they, how they are uniquely different than really other generations, but at the same time, they're totally the same in other ways. And so we're going to try to understand them better and more organically, not just not just statistically. And I'm hoping that uh, Sean McDowell is going to be able to help us with that. We'll talk about unique challenges they face and unique challenges we may face when trying to reach them that maybe we haven't considered because we just didn't grow up the way they did. So, um, Dr. Sean McDowell, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I think you're my first ever live interview that I've oh, ever done. Man, I feel super special. Thanks for having me, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I feel special for you having for me having you having me you having here. So, tell us about uh, yourself a little bit. Tell us who you are for anybody in the audience who just doesn't know. Sure. First off, I've been married to my high school sweetheart 19 years, have three kids, 15, 12, and uh, six. I teach full-time at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in Apologetics, teach high school part-time at a private school, three mornings a week, and I just get to write and uh, and speak, mainly to Christian audiences, but often to a number of other audiences at universities and camps and conferences. It tends to be on topics of theology, worldview, and culture. That's my love. And I'm a big basketball fan, so being an NBA guy, this is a great time of the year. <laughs> nice. Well, um, uh, let me just say this for everybody who's watching. Normally, we do Q&A at the end of the live stream. We're still doing that today, except I would like for the questions to be asked at least mainly towards my guest, Sean McDowell. Um, I think he knows more than me anyway, so I think you guys would like to hear his opinion and thoughts on things. And so as he's sharing, and you could be loading your questions in there. You can ask them throughout the stream. And at the end, um, we'll pull those questions back up and answer as many as we're able to for the live stream. And for those of you, side note, for those of you that are wanting to hear my thoughts on the debate with Matt Dillahunty, that is coming. I've recorded the video. It's just that it's super long and I haven't been able to get it up onto YouTube yet. Um, I'll do that hopefully very, very soon. Um, and anyways, but today is going to be about this topic. So um, the book, the book that you guys just wrote, you, you actually, uh, it, you titled it, So the Next generation will know. And you wrote this book with a co-author. Could you tell us about your co-author? Yeah, Jay Warner Wallace will be recognizable to uh, the people that follow your stream that are in the world of apologetics, author of most prominently Cold Case Christianity, former atheist till he was 35. His wife uh, dragged him to church because their kids were getting older, heard the gospel from Rick Warren and thought, you know what? I'm going to apply forensic analysis and science to the gospel mark really thinking it was false and had no chance of being credible. Long story short, became, ends up becoming a Christian and becomes an apologist, became a youth pastor for a long period of time. So we've been friends for, gosh, almost a decade. And he was, again, a youth pastor, a parent, still speaks 50% to students. And we've just been talking for a long time about what's unique about this generation. Uh, how do we reach this generation? We've done these apologetic mission trips together. I had his daughter in my class when I started thinking about writing this book, I thought, you know what? Jim and I are of different generations. He brings this kind of cold case detective approach to this. 
I think it'd be fun to write this with him. And I think he'd give it a really unique voice. So it was a lot of fun writing with Jim. He's one of my, one of my dear friends and he's just a wonderful communicator. If anyone just happens to have not read his stuff, they need to do so as soon as they can. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of shocking that he, he's such a good communicator and such a good detective because it's hard to take such massive amounts of data and then boop, summarize it the way he does. But um, yeah. And, and the book does go back and forth. You each write different parts and you'll say, I, and Sean, and I actually got, Sean sent me a, a free copy, which I'll be selling later privately on the black market. Um, it doesn't actually get released until May 1st. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So um, anyways, this book though, you wrote it for a specific need. That's my impression as I was trying to read through and kind of get caught up on it. What is the need that uh, drives this whole project? Well, probably the biggest motivation for me are my kids, Scotty, Shauna, and Shane. Two of them are Gen Zers. And my youngest one is, I don't know what they'll call the next generation, but my heart and focus for about 20 years in ministry has been in the next generation. Both of my kids getting older, entering into those just massive decision-making years, I started thinking about if I could write a book on this from my own failures, from my own desires to understand as a teacher, as a speaker, as a youth pastor one year, as a parent, I think there's an awful lot of people that would kind of like to peer behind the curtain and just get a glimpse of what I'm kind of figuring out by trial and error in my own life. So really, it was my own kids and my desire to just figure this stuff out along the way that motivated me to write it. And Frank, I get emails and calls all the time from youth leaders. How do I counsel my kid? How do I speak more effectively? How do I mentor this generation? What is going on with youth today? I thought, you know what, there is a need out there for really a how-to book. And that's what makes this different, Mike, is it's not an apologetics book. If someone picks us up and expects apologist Jay Warner Wallace and apologist Sean McDowell to address the problem of evil, reliability scriptures exist as a God, they're going to be totally disappointed. But if they're picking this up, it's kind of like Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, which was not about answering apologetic questions, but how to practically have spiritual conversations. This is the tactics version of passing on your faith. How do we actually do this? What are strategies that work to help the next generation really come to believe the Christian faith that we hold so dearly? So there's the need. This is what I liked about the book is because I, I assumed it was going to be apologetics, right? Just yeah, just, it makes assume. sense. And as I was looking into it, I went like, "This isn't a this. It has apologetics, but it's not. It's holistic. Right. That would be the yeah. word I would say is that this is this is holistic, not in like some creepy yeah. sense, but you know, it's coming yeah. the whole idea of a person and what's needed in dis, in discipling and reaching um, the youth today. Yeah. So I'm really glad to hear you say that because I kind of live in two worlds, so to speak. I have this apologetics world. I teach in the apologetics program at Biola, speak at apologetics conferences, write apologetics books. But I also work a lot with Christian educators and with youth ministers and with parents. And in that latter world, you tend to hear more about relationships and community. In the apologetics world, sometimes it's all about truth. And I think one of the mistakes is we think it's just relationships or we think it's just about truth. Well, this book, Jim and I are trying to come together and have broader than the apologetics world and just simply say, how do we teach truth and defend it and help kids articulate it and know it? But how do we do this through the medium of relationships? And often books tend to be one or the other. So you'll notice the way we frame the chapters, every single chapter was about love. Love understands. Love connects. Love relates. 
love equips, love ignites. So we really see this as about loving the next generation. But in particular today in our so-called post-truth era, it's more important than ever that we help young people know what is truth, why truth is important, and how to live out this truth. So you're right, it's holistic. There's relationships, but it's also about defending and knowing the truth. And I think that's kind of what sets this book apart. Yeah, it's not an either or. It's And I'm so on board with that. It's just for for those of us that have a have a bent towards apologetics, we we need to recognize that apologetics has no real function if it's not about people. And for Amen. those who are bent towards the people, we have to recognize that without truth undergirding these things, there's it's like a sieve when they encounter uh, challenges and it just drips right out of them. And so it's just so good to to get both. But um, but we're, we're so we're not just going to summarize the, the book for you guys today. What we wanted to do is. Um, actually take the topic of the book and make this a fruitful and, and uh, impactful video that could hope, hopefully give you, like if you're a, a teacher or you're a minister or you're a parent, give you some real tips and understanding on how you can apply this kind of holistic sort of ministry um, to your family, to your ministry, or to the school perhaps where you're at. Mm -hmm. So if you could, uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about the, this generation, Generation Z. What, what does Generation Z mean? Sure. So let me jump in and talk about Gen Z. But the way you framed this at the beginning, Mike, I like and I appreciate a lot. You said there's some unique things about this generation, but we also have a lot in common with this generation. The older you and I get, and I'm older than you, and you'll notice this as you age, Not the more, the, yeah, I probably got you by a few years, is the better things seemingly were in the past and the worst this young generation is. It's always been this way. Yeah. And so I actually, when I speak to audiences, whether it's pastors or youth pastors or parents, I'll often say, write down the first words that come to your mind when you think of Generation Z. And I give them, you know, 5, 10, 20 seconds. And then I start calling the audience. I say, give me words that come to your mind. And the first words tend to be words like entitled, mm -hmm. disconnected, spoiled, uh, like these negative words. And then I pause and I say, okay, I want you to think about something for a second. Of the words you gave me, were they majority negative or majority positive? And Mike, it's like there's this pause where people go, oh my goodness, I can see it on their faces. I am seeing this generation through the lens of the negative. And I stop and I say, look, for every generation, there's positive and every generation there's negative. But the lens through which you see this generation will shape the way you relate to them. And let that sink in. Because if this generation values anything, it's authenticity. They're being sold a million messages a day, nonstop through social media. One of the things their heart cries out for is somebody who's genuine and someone who's authentic. So you and I have more in common with this generation than we do differences. And we have to choose to see the positive. Now, the third thing before we jump in that Jim and I encourage in, in the book is for people to realize that every young person has a unique story. We can look at this research and talk about how they're digital natives and how there's loneliness in this generation and how they're researchers, and we'll talk about that. But we also have to realize that every single young person processes this differently. The research is only going to take us so far. So it's helpful, or we wouldn't put it in the book, but every single young person has a unique individual story that matters. Now, with that said... 
Jim and I lay out about a dozen kind of unique factors of Generation Z. So I had a researcher at Talbot where I work find about 800 pages of research on Gen Z. Every article and journal article I could possibly find. I read the study for Barna. I mean, we just did immense research. It kind of said, as best we can tell, there's about a dozen kind of insights about this generation that seem to consistently bubble to the surface when sociologists and demographers talk about Gen Z. So basically Gen Z are those in like elementary school through college. So millennials are gone, right? It's basically think of like seven, eight, 10 year olds all the way through early 20 year olds. They fit in this mold of generation Z. And some have called them the trans generation, post millennials, the iGen, but Gen Z is kind of the name that has stuck. And probably for the sake of our conversation, there's two factors that stand out if we want to understand them that matter. One of them is clearly Gen Z is the first digitally native generation. I mean, there's no question about it. As an Xer or you, if you're a millennial, we were kind of digital immigrants. But Gen Z, many of them were swiping smartphones and tablets before they could read or before they could talk. Their entire worldview is shaped by being digitally native. So we could talk about that component. The other one is we're seeing this generation is significant increase in loneliness and depression and in suicidality or suicide attempts. We're seeing this in society as a whole, but also with young people. So there's this technological factor that's shaping their beliefs, but then there's this deep emotional brokenness in Gen Z that are two of the more poignant factors we have to talk about when reaching this generation. Yeah. I, I, I love the wisdom that's here. I want to encourage everybody to really think about these things. If you've, if you've been thinking of Gen Z or thinking basically the victim before was the millennials. And (laughs) I would talk to older generations about millennials and they would, and I'm, I think I'm actually technically Gen X 1978 was when I was born. So yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think technically, but anyway, I was talking about the millennials and it was always so negative. And all yeah. I could think when I'm hearing, and I'm talking pastors and leaders, and all I could think yeah. when I say it is, how are you going to reach these people when you despise them so much? <laughs> That's right. So true. Yeah. And, and true. yeah, there's, there's reality issues, but I mean, we come with the gospel of Christ that tells people you're, you're a fallen sinner. Like whatever I say about your smartphone, like you're a fallen sinner. Like that's not, if I can love you with this condition, why would your smartphone make me so irritated that I can't look at you? I don't understand that. Um, anyway, it's just a gospel thing. And I love that. Um, so if you would talk to us a little bit about, um, uh, how this generation is some of the ways in which they're uniquely different. In fact, you mentioned fact checking, and this is something especially Christian educators need to get this pastors who have sometimes quick pat answers to tough questions, but they haven't really thought it through carefully. They've got to learn about the fact checking of Gen Z. So maybe you could share about that. Yeah, not long ago, I was speaking to a group at Berkeley and these college students who are kind of on the border of millennials and 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 Gen Z. I was sitting there talking and they were on their tablets, on their computers, on their phones, checking everything that I said. Now, this was a skeptical atheist group. So they were already skeptical of everything I was going to say. But hit me, I thought, oh, my goodness, they can actually check what I am saying in real time. This is novel for any generation before. And Gen Zers don't even think about this. 
when you and I sit around and start debating, you know, who scored, who has the most rebounds in NBA history or who, whatever, we would talk about it and try to debate it. They just pull it up and figure it out. They're used to using Google as a search engine to just solve problems or YouTube that are out there. So the reason this is significant is we're told that this is a post-truth generation that doesn't care about truth anymore. Well, in one sense, we have easier ways to suppress truth because of endless information. We can just find ways to entertain ourselves and ignore truth, unlike ever before. And we can find another perspective or somebody who will support whatever view we have. That has changed with this generation. But this generation still cares about truth. I mean, I'll tell my kids or my high school students, hey, you know what? I, I, I told you we we're going to watch a video today, but we're not. I'm giving you a test. They'll give me 50 reasons why that's not okay. That's not right. Because they want to argue and reason and defend the truth. This generation still cares about truth. That will never go away. So what they'll do with fact-checking is while you're given a sermon, Pastor, or while you're given a lesson, these kids will look it up. And if you get something wrong, you lose credibility instantly in the eyes of this generation. Christians should always care about truth. But now where trust matters so much to people, right? Trust is one of the most important commodities. I think leaders should be asking with this generation, why should a young person listen to me? Of all the voices speaking into them, why should they listen to me? Why should they listen to you? One answer is if there's a relationship and there's a trust. One of the quickest ways to lose trust is to not do your homework, parrot false information, young people find it out, and it erodes your trust and the message in light of it. So one of the changes we say in the book is if you're ever going to give a message, you got to do your homework. You got to know your stuff. And if you don't know, just say you don't know. But truth should always matter for Christians, but it matters even more today because trust is such an important commodity. Man, that is so true. And the, the good news is the fact checking these young people are doing, guess what? Everybody can do that. They're That's just right. not in the habit of it because a lot of us grew up not having access to more than just a handful of books and no internet to search. And so you would learn a lot of your, your even your apologetics, you would learn it by word of mouth. I heard a story. I heard a guy told me that. A guy came and spoke, but I never double checked it. And so it's time to start double checking our content because Christianity is true. We don't want to make it look weak because we presented a defense of it that wasn't based on, you know, well-grounded facts. And so I think that is good stuff to learn. We had actually had a conversation, John, with, in a, in a meeting I was with, with a group of pastors and there was a young uh, girl there. She's in her twenties, early twenties. And I mentioned this fact checking issue because it's something I've thought about for a while now. And I said, you have to understand to this senior pastor. And I was like, they fact check you while you're teaching. That's and right. He was like, what? And the girl goes, oh, I do that to you. <laughs> exactly. She's just like, yeah, I do that to you while you're teaching. And I want my facts to be so good that when you fact check me, you go, oh, wow, he's right. And I and I gain credibility. That's, That's right. Hopefully what's going to happen there. Now, I know um, I know you got another question, but let me give some perspective there that may help some folks. My, my father has been in ministry about 55 years really started speaking in the 60s. And he shifted from college campuses in the 60s to 80s to high school in the 90s and early 2000s. And then even to junior high and elementary focus. Why? Because he told me, he said, the kinds of questions people were asking in college in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 
shifted to high school in the 90s. And it shifted to even junior high and younger now. And a lot of that is because of technology. Because of the availability of these questions, it's bringing them younger and younger and younger than it was in the past. That's why we have to start this process of not only getting our facts right, but engage the minds of this generation earlier than we ever did. If we wrote this book a, a decade or two uh, earlier, it would have looked very different because kids were asking the questions at older stages. Now they're asking them a lot younger. A lot of that is due to the digital technology that they're being raised with. Yeah, I've heard students that are like, as a youth leader, that are like 12, 13 years old, parroting information that's coming from atheists. I know who said that. I remember that guy. I heard, I watched that video, you know, and realizing like, wow, this is, it's just the reality of things. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm on YouTube. It's the goal here is that this is this is where people are going to look for answers. And so putting the answers here might might help people find them. Um, so what are some tips that you give to parents um, or? Yeah, let's just let's talk about parents for a second. What are maybe some of the some of the application that they'll find um, when you talk about the unique issues with Gen Z and how they can minister to their kids and reach them? Well, one of the ways we try to frame this is we're not saying to parents, you have to completely throw out everything you're doing and start over with this eight-point plan. We don't have time for that. That's overwhelming, and it just doesn't seem practical. Rather, one of the steps we have is we say, look at the way you already live your life and see if you can more strategically use the opportunities that are there that you just might not see. So, for example, when we talk about mentoring this generation, uh, sometimes people think, oh, here's a new program I have to do to add mentoring. I go, no. Think of the things you're already doing in your life and ask yourself, how could I include a young person, whether it's a kid for my community, whether it's my nephew, whether it's my own kids in something I already do. So if you like to exercise, is there a young person once or twice a week? You can just exercise with this person, go for a run lift weights together, uh, go play racquetball, whatever it is. If you're driving to the store, just grab one of your kids and take them with you to build a relationship, have a conversation. If you're fixing something, try to say, what am I already doing? And how can I maximize those times to build relationships and engage kids? And one of the best ways to do this, and really what you'll see in the book, is we have a lot of timely things that are unique to this generation but a lot of what we're suggesting is just timeless principles that even Jesus did. And some of those timeless things never change. So you'll notice Jesus would break bread with people and they would share a meal. Today, we're too busy. There's a number of studies that say kids are far more likely to be psychologically healthy, less involved in risky behavior, and more likely to adopt the values of their parents or significant adults if they just have regular meals with their kids, carve out regular meals. Now, I don't have, we don't suggest in the book that you have this formal laid out devotional time. If you want to do that, great, go for it. Rather, what we suggest is regularly carving out dinner as best you can or meals. And you'll spend a lot of time talking about superheroes or sports if you're in my family, but I very strategically look for things going on in culture, and I just ask my kids questions to have conversations about them. 
So not long ago, there was this huge Jesse Smollett saga about in Chicago and the question of why would this actor seemingly invent this story of becoming a victim? Like, what does this tell us about our culture? So I just shared the story with my kids. I said, what do you think? Why would he make this up? What does this tell us? And they were interested because it's a unique story. And we just kind of had a conversation about where our culture's gone. Now, as Jim and I say in the book, sometimes things work awesome for us. Sometimes they just fail and they don't work well. So just because I'm a McDowell and he's a successful detective doesn't mean people are going to read this book and go, oh, that works for them. You're actually going to learn from a lot of our failures. And you'll also see practical advice. If it doesn't work, pick it up and try another one. But the first principle for parents is just look at what you're already doing. Maybe it's driving in the car and we have suggestions for engaging kids doing that. Maybe it's in the meal. Maybe it's during summer break. How do I utilize the time that's already there and just put a little worldview truth angle on it to intentionally disciple my kids? Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's simple. It's simple, simple stuff. It's just <laughs> family values. It's family values. Like I'm going to spend time with them. And this works for, for ministry too. Um, just spending a lot of time with the students that you're trying to disciple. This doesn't happen perhaps in bigger churches, but uh, as, as much, but what would you recommend for how to apply this kind of concept to uh, people in ministry? Uh, in, in what kind of ministry? Cause that's going to look a little bit different depending on if you're a head pastor, if you're mentoring, if you're a youth pastor. For people that are in youth ministry, either as the pastor or, or people who are just, you know, serving alongside, um, how can they uh, integrate these principles? Well, we have kind of different levels of integration that you can do, starting with simpler things, all the way up to these certain kind of apologetic mission trips that we hope people in ministry would consider taking. And we actually walked through practically how to do this. So my, my co-writer, you asked me about early on, Jay Warner Wallace, he, after he became a Christian, he was a youth pastor for a year. And his first year, interestingly enough, he's a detective, but has 10 years of art school. And you go back, this must be about 15 years ago plus. He was a youth pastor for about a year. And he had candles and he had experience and he had art and all these really cool things with his students. And he told me, he writes in the book, he goes, Sean, by Thanksgiving, all of my students walked away from their faith in college. Every single one of them did. Now, the solution is not, the response is not to give, to not give our kids candles or experiences. But he said, I had to completely go back to square one and say, what am I doing? So he started applying his detective apologetics approach to youth ministry and came up with these trips that he did with Brett Kunkel, who I know you know as well. We did these for years and switched the model from teaching to training. Now, teaching is when we're delivering content to somebody, which is fine. It's important. Training is when you are preparing for an experience in the future. So an athlete is preparing for, say, a boxing match. I have on the date, this match is coming up. I have to train hard because I don't want to get embarrassed. I want to win. Now you train very differently than just teaching. So he shifted his youth ministry from just teaching and delivering content to training. So they started going to Berkeley and bringing in atheists and agnostics and engage with students. They started putting on the calendar. We're going to Salt Lake City and we're going to go engage and knock on doors and talk with Mormons. We're going to BYU. And that shift, they started taking out just some of the normal fun things that they did, which are not bad, but said, we're going to raise the bar, assume our kids are capable of much more, 
and train them to be disciples and get them into the game, living out their faith. And it turned his youth ministry upside down. So it's that principle that we look at to youth pastors. Now, you might not be able to say I can completely transform my whole youth ministry in one way we suggest. Well, we have some smaller ways that you can do this. Take your kids to visit a religious site. Bring in an atheist or bring in a Mormon to come visit and share their beliefs. Well, your students are going to have to get ready and they're going to have to get rocked. So it's that principle of moving to training rather than just teaching on a small level or a big level that I think can actually transform somebody's ministry. Uh, and you see real practical results when you do that. Yeah, it sounds like one of the one of the things that you're suggesting is, and maybe I shouldn't put it this way, but you know, causing the kids to be exposed to some measure of conflict, not violence or something crazy, but conflict with their with their views about God and about Christ. Um, and that that awareness that there's a, 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 you know, intellectual conflict here, or religious conflict here, causes them to suddenly approach this from a new perspective. Yeah, that's right. It's a conflict. And it's a risk. And it's challenge that starts making them go, oh, I'm not just learning the Trinity because I'm supposed to learn this. I'm going to go talk to Mormons and they're going to tell me I'm nuts. And there's three different gods who share purpose. Oh, wait a minute. What do we mean by the Trinity? Mm -hmm. We're going to go talk with some atheists. So yeah, it's interesting to talk about evolution and how it happens, but all of a sudden I'm going to be told, Hey, you don't believe in evolution. You're nuts. You're crazy. You reject all of science. Well, how should I think about this? It starts to change a, ministry when you do this. Parents can do this. I do this with my own kids. Uh, you can do this in a Christian school. You can do this in youth ministry. That's the shift that we're encouraging people to take on small levels or even in some cases on big levels. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about um, apologetics. Uh, when it comes to Generation Z, um, there's there's a lot of issues in apologetics. What issues are, in your opinion, on their radar? Are these like the big issues for someone who's part of this uh, younger generation? So let me answer this in two ways. One, I think there's an issue that's not on their radar, but shapes the way they think about truth. Let me answer that first and then come back to the question you just asked. Partly what's unique about this generation is they have endless options that previous generations didn't have. So I remember these commercials. You'll remember these as a kid. It was like Coke versus Pepsi, right? There's, if you want a soda, there's really two options you can have. Well, now you buy your own soda making machine of the size, level of fizz, flavor tailored just for you. You go to Starbucks. You know, Starbucks, at least according to Google, has 87,000 different possible drink options. We now live in a world, and Gen Z has been raised, that you don't have to listen to Casey Kasem's Top 40 and try to record on a tape your favorite song you have the music you like, when you want it, where you want it, how you want it, as many times as you want it. You have delivered to you on a drone whatever product you want within a day if you want to pay a little extra for it. Well, I don't think we've thought about how this young generation growing up in a world feels like they don't have to tailor themselves to fit an external reality. They can make reality fit their own wants and desires. That's at the heart of how this generation sees truth. So at the bottom, really, the question is, is there such a truth we that we can know? Is truth important? And does truth really bring freedom? 
Am I willing to conform my life to truth? That's the underlying heart of the issue. I think the biggest question for this generation, although they won't tell you this, is what is freedom? Is freedom living according to whatever feels right as my autonomous self, which our culture increasingly says, or is freedom aligning my life with God's reality? That's at the heart of the worldview question. Now, young people aren't asking this and they don't always realize it. I think the questions they are asking, uh, and the, the Barna study by Gen Z backs this up, a few questions. Number one is the intersection between science and faith. Can you believe in evolution? How you know does science conflict with the faith? These kinds of questions. Uh, other questions that make Christianity seem like it's exclusionary because inclusion is one of the biggest virtues today. So how Jesus is the only way is a big question. Uh, and then I would say questions related to LGBTQ issues are huge for this generation. And then, of course, the problem of evil and suffering is generational question, but it shows up increasingly today. And the way we hear it are the injustices done in the name of Christianity are some of the top questions that this generation asks from an apologetics angle. So I'd love to hear you share um, how you would explain to maybe a very young person um, one of these issues. Like, let's take the um, uh, the last, well, one of the last ones you mentioned about LGBT inclusion, that kind of stuff. Like, how do you approach that when you're talking to someone uh, who's part of Gen Z? Well, that's probably going to depend if the person is a Christian or not a Christian. If the person is not a Christian, and I've had a number of these conversations, to be honest with you, I spend a lot of time listening and I ask questions. If this person's willing to talk, hey, tell me your story of what it means to identify as gay or transgender. When did you first have this realization? How did people treat you? What are helpful things people have said? What are unhelpful things people have said? How did coming out as gay or lesbian change your relationships with your parents, with your friends? Has it changed the way you think about God? I actually think today one of the most important things we can do with anybody, in particular Gen Z, is just be good listeners, not quick to judge, not quick to give simple answers. I think this generation realizes that things are complex and not simple. So if it's a non-believer, I'm going to actually spend a lot of time just listening and I'm not going to make a case for a biblical view of sexuality with a non-Christian. I'm probably just, if they're open to it, going to want to talk about Jesus. Yep. Who do you think Jesus is? I mean, do you know anybody who cared about the marginalized more than Jesus and who was against hypocrites? That's the heart of the question, who this person Jesus is. And then we can get to the ethic of Jesus in due time if there's a recognition that he's good and he's God, et cetera. So Generally speaking, that's how I'm going to approach a conversation with a non-Christian if they're willing to talk about it. If it's a Christian, I'm probably also going to ask a lot of questions and, and things like, tell me why this question concerns you. Is it just in general it came up in class or do you have a friend? Or is this something you're wrestling with yourself? When these questions come up with this generation, whatever the question is, the problem of evil, I want to kind of know why is this person asking this question? Is it really philosophical or is it a personal question? And then try to address it accordingly. That's just wisdom with any generation, but in particular with this generation. And if it's a Christian and they're open to it, I'm probably going to want to, if they're open to it, bring it to scripture. What did Jesus say about this? What does Genesis say about it? 
why? What is God's design for marriage and sexuality? Why did God design us this way? Why is it good for us? And kind of have that kind of conversation. So it sounds like in both respects, whether you're talking to a Christian or non-Christian, that you're you're not starting with, here's a question, here's an answer. You go, here's the question, I've got the answer, but let me hold that over here. Let me start with the person. Let me find out who you are, find out where you're coming from, find out what your experiences are, because then it's going to not only earn credibility as I try to give answers, I might find that other answers are more important, or perhaps um, we'll find that the answer I was going to give wasn't going to answer what their real question was. <laughs> and so you well, kind of work through it, right? To, to be honest with you, Mike, I've spent a lot of time answering questions that people weren't even asking mm. because I thought I had the answer, wanted to sound smart, jumped in with assumptions. And then still today, I'll give what I think is great answer. Someone will go, yeah, yeah, that's not what I'm asking. Inside, I'm like, shoot, that was a great answer. Yeah. And sometimes you're going to miss, but I, and it depends on the format. If it's a debate or on radio, sometimes you just have to do that. But in person, I try to go out of my way to just ask more questions and you know, tell me what you mean when you ask about gay. How, how do you define that? Help me understand. Uh, what's your experience with how, if it's a Christian kid, what do you think I'm going to say? How do most Christians respond to this? Uh, what have your other conversations been like? And just get a sense where this is coming from and try to scratch where the person is really itching as best I can. And that takes listening. I mean, Jesus asked a ton more questions than he gave answers. So that's what I try to do. There's some people better than I am. I'm an apologist. So more often than not, I speak and then go, oh, man, I could have listened a little better. But that's what I aim to do. That's my goal is to be person first, understanding, patient, gracious towards somebody and guide them towards truth if they're open to it. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, you know, if we... Everybody watching this channel, like you give answers to people all the time, probably, but sometimes those answers don't land. Like mm -hmm. you say it and you go, that was the right answer. Why didn't it land with that person? <laughs> and maybe the issue is not the answer. The issue is the person. Why didn't it land with that person? And that's what those questions can draw out and help us to just get better at it as we're learning. We, we also can't think that we're going to, if we have just the perfect smooth operator way of asking and answering questions in that moment, everything will work out great. And that's obviously not the case. <laughs> But even just, you're right, we can minister to somebody without even answering their question by showing them, gosh, your question is really important to me. And you're an interesting person to me. And I may or may not have the answer, but I want to make sure I'm at least trying to answer what you're really asking. This communicates the person, whether the question lands or not, what does land is, gosh, I'm important to this person. And I matter to this person and they're trying to get it right. That communicates a level of love that's just lost in our divisive culture today. We'd rather make smart points that get on Twitter or somewhere else. We'd rather sound smart, win an argument. Well, my goodness, what good does that do as a believer if that's how we approach it? Okay, so speaking of questions, I think what we'll do is we'll go to the, the live questions. You guys watching live, um, you've been putting some questions in the chat. And I could ask uh, AJ if you could send those things on over. Um, I think AJ's there in the live chat, I'm assuming. If not, maybe Sarah or someone could send them on over. And what we're going to do right now is we'll uh, ask your questions. Uh, I don't mind answering a couple of questions, you guys, but I'd prefer to give the floor to uh, Sean. He's here as my guest, and um, I think he has a lot of really interesting insights. You hear me talk all the time, so hopefully we can get something from him. So I'm just waiting to get those questions sent over. 
And um, Sean, is there uh, anything else that you could think you wanted to share with us while we're waiting for those questions to come in? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a great question. I guess I could go a number of different directions while we're waiting. Um, what came to my mind since we're getting somewhat near summer is an idea that I write in for parents is to say, take, take your summer and think through worldview movies that you can watch with your kids and have conversations about them over the summer. So one movie I watched with my kids, The Elephant Man, that movie was made in 1980, but it's black and white as if it was made in the 50s. That is a powerful movie with Anthony Hopkins about a, a guy, his name's escaping me, who was dubbed the Elephant Man. I just showed it to my kids, and we probably talked 10 or 12 minutes, but it has a very powerful biblical idea in it. We watched other movies, like uh, recently Black Panther, and then we talk about some of the worldview ideas within Black Panther. Now, it doesn't mean your kids are going to sit there all the time and go, wow, tell me, let's have a deep conversation. I tried to show my kids the movie by Robert Duvall, The Apostle, and it just bombed. I mean, my kids thought it was stupid. They still like give me a hard time. They go, hey, dad, you want to watch The Apostle? Uh, the Apostle? And, and I'll laugh because whatever. But there's one practical idea we put in there. So we go, think about your summer. And maybe once a week, just say, we're going to watch a movie on a Thursday night or Wednesday night or Friday night. It's going to be a worldview movie. And it can be a biblical movie like Risen, but it doesn't have to be that explicitly biblical. It could be Infinity War. I have a blog on the worldview behind Infinity War and another one on the gospel behind Infinity War. The gospel is embedded in that movie. It's powerful. Watch it with your kids and talk about it with them. So that's just the kind of practical ideas we're trying to filter throughout the book. So people might hear this and go, oh, I don't, that wouldn't work in my family. Great. Don't use it. Well, we've got a bunch more. And we end the book by saying, at this point, you might feel overwhelmed because we've given you so, so many ideas. You don't have to do them. That's not the point. Just take one or take two or take three. Take baby steps of the practical things that you're doing. And all of us can get better over time for the sake of our kids. That's how we frame it. And that's one practical idea that ended up working with my kids pretty well. Awesome. Okay, so we have a question from uh, Austin Avenaki, and it's for Sean. It says, uh, has your strategy with addressing the transgender LGBT uh, – hold on, I just got – more questions came in, which reset my thing. Okay. Has your strategy um, addressing these LGBT issues changed at all since your writings in the book A New Kind of Apologist? Uh, a New Kind of Apologist was 2016. And I didn't write the chapter in there on homosexuality or on transgender. Alan Schleeman wrote the chapter on transgender. I wrote an introductory chapter framing that book. So I edited that book rather than uh, was the direct author of it. So I can't think of anything that's changed in three years as I look at it. If I went back, say, 15 years, I think I would come up with a couple areas in which I have changed and maybe refined my reproach, not reproach, my approach on the LGBTQ question. I think early on, I went back and forth a couple of times on people are born this way. They're definitively not born that way. And I think the APA probably got it right. They said, we really don't know why people have same sex attraction. There's a number of different potential routes that could get somebody to have it. And there's probably some combination of nature and some combination of nurture. 
I think that's probably right. But early on, I had changed my view about that, reading different reports a few times. That's an example. But I can't think of anything in particular from compiling the book just three years ago, a new kind of apologist. All right. Um, First Last has a question. Why, in your opinion, oh, excuse me, um, I'll do all our wholesome, wholesome home first here. I skipped one. As a mother who plans on homeschooling our children, what can I be proactive in educating myself on that you find many parents dropping the ball on when preparing their children for the world? That's a great question. Gosh, I could go a lot of different directions with this, but let me tell you an example, since this is a homeschool mom and I don't, I'm not stereotyping homeschool moms or public school moms or private school moms. I was speaking at a homeschool convention and one lady asked a question. She said, what do I do? Every time I take my kids to Disneyland, it's gay day. I don't want my kids exposed to this. What do I do? And she kind of asked it like that. And I paused. I thought about it. I said, you know what? As a Christian, I actually think it's not a bad idea to find out when gay day is and intentionally take our kids. There are gay people in the world. And we should tr- teach our kids how to love them and interact with them and be a model of Jesus to them. And she says to me, she goes, what if my kids say something offensive? I said, great. Then you teach your kids how to apologize and learn firsthand how to not treat people that way. I think there's a temptation for all of us to try to lock our kids in the closet, hide them from things in the world and protect them. And as a parent, I 100% understand that intuition. And sometimes I want to lock my kids up. There's so much filth out there. But I'd really say this to any parents. I'd say we have the truth on our side. And studies show that parents are the number one influencer of the next generation. So find ways within the safety of your home to expose kids to the ideas of the world. Find a way to do this. So I'm teaching, a, it's a senior Bible class, but I would do this with younger kids. And we're just finishing a huge book on apologetics. We're about to start Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation. Now it's a shorter book and he pulls no punches on just ripping Christianity as being false and immoral. Well, I just spent three or four months studying Christian apologetics. Now I'm showing my students, I'm not afraid of this. I've given you tools Let's take a look at these ideas of the world we have nothing to be afraid of. Another example, my son came to me when he was 14, he just turned 15, and this movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out, and it was about the story of Queen. And I knew that they had a little spin on this about sexuality that had a little bit of an agenda. It was PG-13. So I read about it, looked into it, I thought, you know what? I think my son is old enough to see this. So I said to my son, I said, here's the deal. I'll take you and a friend. And I know these friends' parents, if they give permission, will go to this movie because I read stuff online about it. I said, but when we're done, the agreement is we're going to come home. We're just going to sit down for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm not going to lecture you, but we're just going to talk about what we saw in the movie and how we should think about it Christianly. He goes, great. Bring his friend, go to the movie, come home. We sit down and had a great conversation for 20 minutes. So my principle for this homeschooling mom is the same principle for any mom, is it's not just one issue we have to educate our kids in. There's a ton of issues today, and you can't be an expert in everything. But as we teach them a Christian perspective, 
make sure we don't set a straw man up of ideas in the world, but let's read an atheist together. Let's go watch a movie that challenges our beliefs. Let's go find a place to go with people who see the world very differently and learn to love them. That's some of the best education I could think of that I would do very strategically if I was homeschooling my kids. Mm -hmm. Well, those are, it's good stuff. If I could summarize what I, tell me what you think of the summary, what I heard you say. Rather than saying, oh no, the world, you think, oh great, worldview issues. And you target those things. As long as it's not stumbling your kids, you want to you wanna go after it so that you can use it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a question from, uh, here's that one from first last. Why, in your opinion, is church attendance dropping so dramatically in the last few years, particularly for millennials and younger? What can churches do to combat this? This is a really interesting question. And I just finished endorsing a book that comes out June 18th called The Myth of the Dying Church by Glenn Stanton. He works for folks in the family, and he did pretty extensive research and kind of persuaded me in this book that what's happening in the church is the group, I'm sorry, in our culture, is the group called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is growing substantially. You also have a church that is dying, but the church is the mainline liberal church. Bible-believing churches, with the one exception of the large Southern Baptist church, are either staying the same or growing. Now, just let that sink in. We have not seen the massive church decline in the West that we have been told about over the past few years. Now, that there is a massive decline in a couple areas. Number one, People just describing themselves as Christians. It used to be a label everybody adopted. Well, that label has decreased a little bit because we see more clash between Christian ideas, in particular on sexuality with our broader culture, than we did in the past. Christian views are increasingly being considered intolerant and bigoted and harmful in ways that they weren't in the past. They were considered good even if people didn't follow them. That's changed. We're seeing the mainline churches drop radically. But Bible-believing and preaching churches in America are not in as significant of radical decline as a lot of people think. If his book is right, and he researches it pretty well with Pew Research and other studies, has made me rethink some of this narrative. So he's questioning the secularization thesis about America in terms of at least religious attendance. Now, does that mean within that there's not some areas of concern? No, it doesn't mean that. We see a drop-off with millennials. We probably will see that with Gen Z. The question that still kind of remains is when they get old enough and have kids, will we see them coming back as previous generations did? And the difficulty is some of those life-defining moments, like getting a full-time job, owning your own place, getting married and having kids, are happening later. In the case of getting married and having kids, sometimes not at all with millennials. So are we going to see them come back as previous generations? I think that kind of still remains to be seen, and it certainly remains to be seen with Gen Zers. But I would say, here's the bottom line. Why are mainline churches dying? Because there's no difference between a mainline church and the larger culture. Why go to church? They basically affirm everything the wider culture in Hollywood teaches. 
But what we do see, and this amazed me, this amazed me in his research, is that actually people who identify as LGBTQ were significantly more likely to go to a Bible-preaching, non-affirming church than an affirming church. Why? Because at a non-affirming church that holds the historic view of the Bible and sexuality, they are more likely to hear the Bible preached and the gospel than at a uh, affirming church. So perhaps one of the most important things we could do is be socially engaged and fight for justice and preach the scriptures as Jesus preached them. And you know what? If we do those things and the church fades, then so what? We're being faithful. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Nothing's changed. Just do what they did. <laughs> That's all we do. Um, okay. This is from uh, Peanut Warrior. Uh, question. Uh, what are your thoughts on traditional versus contemporary music? I love both, but both youth and others disagree on how enjoyable it is and how practical it is. By the way, this is a great topic. I got to be honest. I don't have huge thought out convictions on traditional versus classical music. I'm not the best person to ask about this. But I guess I, th if, if you had to ask me, my reflections would be a couple things. I understand why churches have a traditional church and a more contemporary one. I understand the need for that. Churches that I've seen do this well, find a way to have blend. Because the question said, I don't enjoy traditional as much. Well, worship is not just about what we enjoy. And I find myself approaching it the same way. It's about corporately connecting with people and losing ourselves in giving worth and praise to God. So if I like every song, then it just comes easy and natural to me. But if there's some songs I'm uncomfortable with and that are older that other people like, I learn to conform my likes to another generation who's just as much of the body of Christ as I am. So if you have a, if you have a church service, and I hope many of them are, that have cross-generations, they need to find ways to have both worship mixed in so we can appreciate what other generations like, worship in our own way, but also be stretched. And if somebody says they want to leave a church because they just don't like the music, and I'm not saying this person is saying that, if a person says that, then my goodness, talk about a massive adventure in missing the point of what church is about. Amen to that, man. I don't care what music you play. I'll worship the Lord. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that. The words are good. <laughs> as long as the words are good. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So this is from Joe CJ. Uh, question for Sean. What do you think churches in America can do to help youth be rooted and built up in the person and work of Christ? Hmm. That's a great question. In the person and work of Christ. So since the question was phrased in the person and the work of Christ, I would say two things. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this book is that churches need to teach good Christian theology. The Barna research shows that people who see the world like Jesus are more likely to live like Jesus. We need to teach a biblical worldview about who Jesus is. That includes his suffering. That includes his offensive statements. That includes that he's God. That includes that he's man. 
We need to teach exactly who this Jesus is, the attractive parts and the difficult sayings that he said, because this is all a part who Jesus is. We cannot water down the teachings of Jesus. But we also have to show this generation how to actually live this out. What does this look like with my neighbor? What does this look like online? What does this look like when watching a movie or a YouTube video? So just like Paul did, it's the same formula. I'm going through Romans with a group of high school students right now. We got to chapter eight and it starts to shift to the spirit and a practical living kind of from theology. Well, Paul gives theology and then he shows how it shapes the way that we live. In the churches today, we need the best, clearest, good Christian theology, but we also have to connect for students how to live this out. So teach what Jesus taught about life. And then go visit a pregnancy resource center. Teach what Jesus taught about creation. And then find a way to go care for the environment in a biblically appropriate manner. Teach theology and show kids how to live this out. So one of the questions I often ask is when I teach a lesson of students at the end, I'll just simply say, why does this even matter? Who cares? How does this shape the way we're supposed to live? And if we do good theology and show it how it applies to life, I think to answer the question, we'd help this generation see the person and the work of Jesus. Awesome. Okay, this is going to be the last question for tonight. This is from AJ Bernard, and he says, Dr. McDowell, fact-checking is a difficult thing in the age of Wikipedia. How do we deal with unreliable sources used to corroborate for faulty positions? Well, you just have to do your best and you have to do your diligence. All of us are going to get something wrong. I wrote a book, Ethics, in 2006, and I'm updating it. And I included a story in there of a source I thought was good. And now I have to take it out. I'm like, I should have double checked that. So it happens. When we make a mistake, just own it. I'd be happy to say the story, why I was wrong and why I'm going to take it out. These things happen. So just do your due diligence, but also nuance our statements based upon the evidence that we have to back it up. So don't over dogmatize dogmatically. I know dogmatize is not a word. Don't over dogmatically say something if the evidence isn't there to back it up. So I try as an apologist to say things like, I can't prove this or every reasonable person would agree unless it's super obvious. I nuance the way I word things based upon the evidence that seems to be there backing it up. So if you do your due diligence and just do your best to check sources and double check and back them up in a way that you would want for you, and then you nuance your statements. Like I was just reading with Romans 7 with my students, and I'm like, you know what? There's two competing views in this. Here's the one that I hold. I'm not super confident about it. I could be wrong about this. So I nuanced my statement about it based upon the level of debate that is there. I think that's integrous. I think that's what people expect. And I think that's fair. So if you do those two things, I think you should be fine in this, in the culture in which we're at. All right. Well, if you guys are interested in getting the book, um, the, there's a link in the description down below. It is, um, I be- so the next generation will know. That's right. That's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> I thought I'm going to say it wrong. Of course, that's me. Um, yeah. So the next generation will know, and there's a link down below. It's not uh, out yet, but that's that link should be valid for whenever it is. And- hey, hey, by the way, just in case your listeners are interested, uh, Jay Werner Wallace and I, until it releases on May 1, 
are giving a bunch of free stuff, a huge PowerPoint presentation I put together in Gen Z that cost me a ton in research and, and graphic design, some training PDF articles, and some MP3s all focused on reaching the next generation. If you go to your link or you just go to my site, seanmcdowell.org, you'll see a link to the book. And we give descriptions that if somebody just buys the book and just emails in a screenshot of it, we will send you all this free stuff if you order it by May 1. Nice. That's great. Good. I'm going to take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> what the free stuff? So, um, okay. Well, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Sean McDowell, for being here with us. I appreciate it. It's been my first interview, so hopefully it wasn't too bad. I think you shared some really good stuff, and I think that it will hopefully encourage us on a few specific things, but let's just be intentional and realize that nothing's changed with discipleship, but mm. we can't have jaded views towards the youth, nor can we be unaware of how their lives are different than the life maybe that we had growing up. And that will, it will only help us uh, to raise them up in the ways of the Lord when we're aware of those things. So uh, thanks again, Dr. Sean McDowell for being here. You bet. Yeah. Oh, let me just mention too, my debate review, because I, I saw people like in the chat, like they want to talk about the debate. The debate review is coming out. It's a two hour video and I get into everything that I could get into in that video. I go into great detail on it and I hope you guys take the time to watch it. I think it's really valuable and I think it will really help push the conversation forward in the issue of the resurrection of Christ. Um, at any rate, uh, that'll be coming out uh, this week. So be on the lookout for it on my channel. God bless you guys.